Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. My name is Marty Lockman, and we want to thank once again the great people and companies that with their support allows us to bring you these great stories. Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, who have been part of our community for almost 80 years, their quality products, along with unparalleled service, sets them apart. Bighorn Properties, supporting many of our community activities, but most importantly, giving you the knowledge and professionalism in representing you with your biggest asset, the Eisenhower Medical Facility. So important to our community. They give members of Bighorn access to the highest quality of health care. In an ever-changing world, they are continuing to stay ahead with facilities that are always improving. Back Nine Greens, whose works of art continue to be in the forefront of design and service. Dominic Nappy and his staff will help you in creating exactly what you want. Corliss Estate Wines brings you old world wine with new world fruits to provide you with a high quality product. We appreciate their support and encourage you to try their wines in the poorhouse and the steakhouse. Today's guest exemplifies the fact that there are many ways to have success. There are always ups and downs and twists and turns, but the basics are very often the same. Good work ethic, perseverance, and striving to get better. Craig Nagler, with his wife Ruth, have been members since 2004. Now let's get started. Craig, take us on your journey, which starts in Marysville, California. Well, Marty, <laughs> let's start this as simply as I can. I was born in Marysville, California. I grew up in the little town of Sutter, California, which is about 10 miles west of Marysville. And my family had a farm there. And so I grew up on the farm. When I was a kid, very young kid, my dad played professional football. He played for nine years. We lived in Cleveland. We lived in Chicago. We lived in Pittsburgh. But that was when I was, I think he retired when I was five. So I don't remember much of it. It did give us uh, an interesting life growing up as a kid because he knew a lot of people that were still in the NFL and we got to experience visiting some of them and stuff. But basically I grew up, was born in Marysville, grew up there, went to Sutter High School. My family, uh, basically my dad, when he retired uh, from football, he invested in a farm with my grandparents. Also, outside of my grandparents, he started farming tomatoes and then almonds. So as a kid, first of all, as you said, it's fascinating that your father played in the NFL. But again, at that age, you're really not cognizant of what that means necessarily. Do you have any recollections of that period at all, about I, moving I, from place to place? Because that could be difficult for a young No, child. I really don't. I remember Cleveland. That was the last place. That's where he retired from. He actually did when we were at Pittsburgh, and my sister was born in Pittsburgh. I just remember little bits and pieces of it, and I don't really remember much. But it was kind of interesting. Um, Jim Brown was filming a movie outside of uh, Marysville one time and came over to our house for dinner. And by the way, the guy was built like nothing I've ever seen before. It's just his shoulders He were... really was a man playing with boys at that time. I mean, and and what an athlete, not just a football player, but a, a lacrosse player and everything else. But But— to you, probably a celebrity when he comes over to the house. Yeah, it's pretty cool. 
And, you know, so, and we got to do, we got to do really fun things. Like, um, one of my dad's best friends was Pat Summerall. And so when Pat would come out to do the, every year, the, every other year, the 49ers would play the Dallas Cowboys. And his other good friend was a guy by the name of Ray Renfro, who was the offensive coordinator for the Dallas Cowboys. Basically, we would get to go and stay with the Dallas Cowboys on the floor with the players, go to like the team meeting. And it was, it was really cool. What an experience. I remember, you know, we were so young, my dad would go out and he and Pat would go out and have a couple of cocktails and we would be left in the hotel and we'd be playing elevator tag in the Fairmont. And, you know, so it was, it was a pretty fun child. Well, Pat was known to have a cocktail or two. He would have more than one. But now you're on the, you come back. This is not retirement for your dad because in those days they didn't make the kind of money, that obviously, that they're making today. No, he, he played in the Pro Bowl. His salary was $23,000. He sold fertilizer for a fertilizer company in the offseason in order to make a living. There just was no money in it. He was obviously in our little market. He was kind of a big deal. It worked for him going out and working with the farmers and doing all that. Basically, I, I like to refer to it as I grew up an indentured servant. He was the celebrity. You know, I grew up working on the farm. Farm is a farm. You know, you get up and work before school and you work after school and you do football and baseball and basketball. And after those, you go do something every day. You're going to school as a young kid. You are involved in school activities, in sports. Yes. Right? What kind of sports were you involved in? in Football, basketball, baseball. Great. My brother did five sports. You know, we were a little tiny high school. My graduating class from the high school was 76 kids. So, you know, in football season, I played every play of every game. You know, you, there was no, you know, offensive team and defensive team. It was, you know, we were lucky to be able to scrimmage. I blew up my knee, kind of eliminated my uh, sports career early in high school. I was a better baseball player than football player, but uh, I, I enjoyed both. But again, before school, what would be a normal day? Go move sprinkler pipe in the orchards, you know, because you, the irrigate, you have to irrigate every day. So we'd get up early, go move sprinkler pipe, go to school. We'd get done. You'd move sprinkler pipe again in the evening because you'd move two sets. And then we'd come home. Then you had schoolwork to do, and then you go back and let's do it again the next day. Yeah, the schoolwork part I was a little weak on, but you know, <laughs> well, my, my mother was a teacher as well. That was a uh, interesting dynamic. So now you're going to school, where you're working on the farm. You have a great work ethic because that's expected. Yeah, there is no choice. This isn't. Would you like to do this? No. Other than working on the farm, any other jobs that you had when you were growing up? It was 99% on the farm. My mom and dad separated when I was 16. My dad moved away, and my mom ended up with part of the farm, and he sold part of the farm. For a couple summers, I worked underground construction, doing uh, installing water lines and sewer lines and things like that, telephone cable, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you know, a couple, couple unique, different jobs that I did. But, you know, mostly it was on the farm. But the, the cool part about being on the farm is the little school I went to, back then they had great elective courses. You know, I had auto shop. And I took a little Volkswagen and I completely refurbished it in the auto shop. Yeah, I had a welding class and they taught you how to weld and how to cut and how to build things. For my whole life, I was, I was a little bit of a motorhead. You know, I'd go take a car apart and, you know, make it go faster and do things. But... It was just, you know, what we did on the farm. It's like having a trade school of your own. It is a, it, 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 we need it again. 
we need it for today, for our kids today, because their only alternative that they're pushed through school today is that you're going to go to college at the end of the rainbow. And there's a big percentage of the kids today that aren't going to do that, or they, they may do it, but, but when they get done, they don't know how to do anything. Well, there is no pot of gold anymore either, because there was a period of time where you were told that if you get a college education, then you have a better chance of moving forward in whatever business that you want to do. And that's not entirely true no. today. Well, in the practical experience of doing things, of making something, of, of actually implementing something is a big deal. When you learn how to do all these things, rebuilding a car... Is this an aptitude that you had? Was this because your father at one point showed you how to do this? How do you believe that that skill set came about? I can tell you one instance that it came about. It was kind of self-inflicted. I had a work truck that I got to drive that was one of my dad's trucks. Sent a rod through the block of the engine at about 7,000 RPM one day. My dad told me I get to drive again after I get the motor rebuilt. And uh, his, our mechanic would help me, but I was going to do everything. Basically, you know, it was about a two-month grounding. I went back every day and worked on putting this motor together. You know, he bought a short block because the short block was shot. But Many of the things that we learned when we were kids were brought out of necessity. It wasn't, again, always choice. It was choice if you wanted to move ahead and have the things that you wanted, but they weren't given to you. There were things expected before you had got to have those things. Yeah, I remember when, when I was 14, maybe, we, we had tomatoes, and I drove tractor and forklift in the tomatoes, and I'm 13, 12, 13, 14 years old. I'd be loading trucks. We had truck drivers who'd get a little cranky if you didn't stack all the bins on there perfectly. And Well, I'm a young kid, and he's, this truck driver one day comes in and tells me, get off, get off, I'll do it myself. So I get off, and he loads his truck, and, and he was just berating me. So he went in to go into the, to the restroom, the outhouse, after he got finished loading his truck, and I picked up the forklift, I picked up the outhouse, lifted him up about 10 feet in the air and drove around the yard with it shaking around. <laughs> and so I was a little feisty, you know, when I was younger, but and my dad just thought that was hysterical. Your dad, obviously, great impact on your life. Big impact. But now they get separated. Mm -hmm. How does that impact you at that time? You're 16 years old? Yeah. yeah. And my mom, you know, my mom was left living in the farmhouse and my dad moved up to Portland, Oregon. And so I was the, the basically there with her and she was, she was great. I mean, she is always very stable, very solid. And, you know, she's out running the farm and we're, we're helping and, you know, but she's doing her own thing and she was awesome. She'd go out and drive the side rake and, you know, in the orchard and, you know, she was, she was cool, but she was a school teacher and, you know, believed in education and believed in, you know, that, you know, that's the foundation of everything. And so, you know, we were expected to get reasonable grades. I was out of my family. I was by far the least studious. Uh, my brother went to Stanford on a scholarship. And my sister uh, went to Arizona, and both of them had pretty good grades. And I was, I, I, I was told that if I got a B average, that they would reward me by allowing me to continue to drive. So that's uh, basically my motivation. But it it kept me going, and and I always I never got below B. I can tell you that. Well, but those expectations are important. Mm -hmm. Do you, not to get ahead of ourselves. But do you try to instill those same expectations with your own children? Yes. Yeah. It's important. And, yeah. 
much more so today than it was then. You know, it's like I had told my parents I'm not going to college when I graduate, when I, when I was in high school. I said, I'm not going to go. I'm going to farm. And so I did. I farmed the first two years I, after I graduated high school. And it was a knockdown, drag out fight between my mom and my dad because my mom wanted me to go to school. And my dad said, hey, some kids aren't cut out for school. Some kids are cut out to go to the real world. And so I farmed for a couple of years and learned how uh, marginally profitable a lot of work is and a lot of stress and a lot of risk. Then I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to school. So I went to, uh, went to junior college to qualify to get into college, went up to Chico and promptly figured out that I wasn't cut out for school. And so basically, you know, it was, I tried, you know, I tried to do what they wanted me to do and it just wasn't my deal. You know, I'm a, I'm a more of a worker and the, I'm not very good with theory. And so when people are telling me in theoretical terms how to do something, when I know in practical terms that that's really kind of not the way I would do it, I just kind of checked out and went, went and do my own thing. Well, there is that old line of you can be book smart, but it doesn't help you in the real world. You have to have things that apply to real life. And I think that's the way my brain works. I think that, you know, I have to have function, you know, something that, you know, I can, by the way, I can do the most complex math equations in the universe as long as I know what I'm working on and what I'm trying to obtain. It's just kind of one of those things. Now, you've gone through high school, you've gone to junior college, you decide that you're going to go into the real world. Mm hmm which I completely understand, and I think, as we've already said, there should be uh, alternate paths for people who college is not the right thing for, right. and that might be trade schools or, or whatever, but it's important because you want people to be able to have skills that are marketable. Mm -hmm. Where do you do next now? When I was going to drop out of school, I called my dad and I said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm done here, and I don't know what to do. And my dad, he said, the guys that make the most money anywhere in any company I've ever seen are sales guys. Go learn how to sell. He hooked me up with one of his good friends owned a car dealership in town. And he hooked me up with him. And I went to work for him selling cars. It was a great experience. You walk in thinking you're going to kill the world just automatically because you're you. And, and it's not like that. It takes a lot of work and it takes knowledge and talent and timing and learning how to sell none of which I, I had. It was really fortunate. I, the gentleman who owned the dealership put me out in the field and said, hey, we're going to go, you're going to work farmers. Go out farm to farm. Just see what you can do. You know, you're going to sell some stuff. You're not going to sell some stuff, but we're going to build relationships with these farmers. And, and I did that, and I did it for about 18 months. And one of the gentlemen that I, that I met doing this was manufacturing mining equipment. He basically bought four cars from me. On the fourth car, he wanted a Mercedes, and we weren't a Mercedes dealer. And he goes, well, just handle it. Get it for me. I go, okay. I went down to Von Housen to Sacramento, and I got a Mercedes and delivered it to him for his wife. And when I delivered it, he goes, I want you to go to work for me. He manufactured mining equipment and for gold mining. I went to work for him and kind of transitioned out of the car selling and was selling mining equipment. The mining equipment we sold all over the world, which was really fun. I got to go to Guyana and South America, and I went to Alaska multiple times, and Canada, and just kind of all over the place. But it was it was another, you know, just a step 
you know, in my life, I wrote them down, but I think I have four, I've had 14 different jobs in my life as far as trying to figure out where I was going to go. And my, one of my favorite sayings today is that I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. It's every day is a new adventure. And as I work through life, my jobs changed, my things changed, but ultimately you end up using all the knowledge that you've developed from the prior experience for the next experience. And some of the jobs were not glamorous. I sold a company that I had that I started with some people. Didn't know what I was going to do. And I was bored to death. And I went out and sat down with my mom. So I don't know what to do. And she pulls out the want ads. You used to have the newspaper and the want ads. And she goes, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know, but I'm going to do something today. And I closed my eyes and put my finger down. And there was a job opening for painting garbage trucks. And I said, done. I go, I'm calling. I'm going to go see if I can get the job. Basically, I went out and I took the job painting garbage trucks. At the same time, there was a real estate developer in, the, in town that was my idol because he had his own little air force. He had a jet and a turboprop and a helicopter, and, and he just was like the James Bond of our little town, you know. She goes, what do you really want to do? And I said, I'd love to work for him. So I sent him a resume, and I'm thinking, you just send a resume. You don't call, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I take the job painting garbage trucks. The phone rings, and it's my, it's my, there's a PA system in the, in the warehouse where we're doing this thing. Craig Negler telephone. Well, it's my mom. And this guy's office was calling, wanting to set up an interview. Basically, after three phone calls of doing that, I did the interview. He hired me and he said, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. You're going to be my boy Friday. You're going to follow me around and do whatever I want you to do. That's how I got in the real estate business. The first project he gave me, he had taken back, foreclosed and taken back a prune dehydrator. And he said, you know, prune season starts next week. We have no fruit committed to this thing. I need you to go fill this thing up. And he goes, we need 3,500 tons to go through this or we're going to lose money. And so he goes, you're going to have to go talk farmers into giving you fruit. And so I ran all over the place, talked farmers into giving me fruit. We got down to the end season and I only got 3,000 through it. And I thought, oh God, I'm going to get fired. So I went into a meeting with him and his brother and he said, the brother says, you got how much through there? And he says, we've never done that kind of volume through there. So obviously he was lying to me, but you know, then the next project was a 14,000 acre land development up in Nevada that we cut it into 40 acre parcels and and it was, he just, he was crazy. He just handed me things and said, go do this. And I had no idea what I was doing and he knew it. And, but he just gave me the leash to go make it happen. It was cool. It was. We always talk about the opportunities can be present themselves, but you have to be prepared to do what's necessary to make them successful. And you're obviously one of the people that does what's been talked about before. You want to be the first one in, the last one to leave. And when somebody says they need something done, you raise your hand because you can do it. And if you do that, you are invaluable to any company that there is. Now you just need to get a mentor or a person that allows you to reach that full potential. And that's what this situation obviously provided for you. He was he was. He was awesome. I mean, he basically, I, I got an education that nobody in the world could get today because they couldn't afford to do it. You know, he put me in charge of building things that were, you know, my, my third project was a 3,000 acre master plan that we, we des that I designed. 
and it had a water treatment plant, a sewer treatment plant, you know, an airport, an FAA approved, I got an FAA approved airport built into it. I, you know, I built apartments, I built houses, I built, you know, industrial land and sold industrial land. And you can never do that today. My marching order was make it happen. And I go, what about money? He goes, let me handle the money. You just make it happen. It was fascinating. You say it couldn't be done today. Why? Well, first of all, the cost and the timeline. I took a 3,000-acre garlic farm. Basically, in 18 months, we had houses built. We got it entitled. We got it approved. We started building a water treatment plant. We started building a sewer treatment plant. I had houses on the ground in 18 months from the day we closed escrow on it. In California, the last big real estate transaction I worked on in California was we optioned 1,600 acres of land from some farmers south that, that was adjoining a city in Sacramento area. We wanted to annex it into the city and develop it. 27 years ago, it's still not annexed. The time that it takes and the money that it takes and the, the energy that it takes and the complexity of the financing that you have to do today to make these things happen, you, you just can't make it happen. You know, we, we built our own infrastructure there. I made an agreement with the county that said we could build uninhibited as long as we provided 110% of the infrastructure that we needed. We always had to have 10% out in front of us so that they could have some additional growth. And we just took off and started building. And then we expanded the sewer plant as we needed it. We expanded the water treatment plant as we needed it. And, and there was, there was, you, you couldn't do a, an agreement like that today. It was fascinating. What you accomplished, what traits do you have that allowed you to do that? You're obviously inquisitive, which I find to be one of the most important traits anyone could have. You want to know how things work. You want to know how things are done. But again, you had no background in doing this. None. And you really have to have the guts to make some decisions. It's a risk-reward business, but you have to take risks at times. I call it educated, calculated risks, right? If I don't know something, I find somebody that knows about that. And then I learn as much as I can from them and try to figure out if I'm making the right decision. And, you know, at the end of the day, you make a decision. I made some good ones and I made some bad ones, as everyone. You learn from the bad ones and you, you never look back. For me, my life is based on never looking back. Learn from what you did wrong, but don't let it inhibit you going forward. You know, you've got to keep moving forward. You've got to keep advancing. To me, that's the most important part of training people, teaching people, is that don't let a failure kick you, you know? Basically, you just got to keep going forward. Yeah, we have somebody came on to one of our podcasts and said, if a person hasn't failed, they don't want to necessarily do business with them because you have to learn oh how to fail if you're really going to succeed. Yeah. You talk about a formal education, the greatest education you can have is doing something, and you learn from doing. Yeah, the background on the farm, you just can't overestimate the value of the background on the farm. You know, I could do anything. I could build anything I, because it's just how I grew up. It didn't scare, nothing scared me. You know, I knew, I knew if something went south, I could fix it. I had to do it every day in my, my young childhood growing up through the farming thing. So when you get into a, a, a development project and, you know, we've seen things from running into dinosaur bones to, you know, you just have to learn that, hey, by the way, you know, that's a problem. 
we're going to resolve the problem. How do we get it moving forward again? In my development world, I think the reason that I was decent at what I did is because I never let anything slow me down. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to deal with this, push it off to the side, but keep moving forward. And timing is everything in real estate. You know, you have to be able to get it produced and get it on the ground and get it sold because markets change. Being proactive rather than reactive. Exactly. And when we were up there, he ultimately sold the project to a group from Scotland that bought the whole thing after we got it up and running. And then, you know, I was off to the next adventure. Ultimately, I worked for him for, I think, six or seven years. I think I was the president of 25 different companies that he had. He was a deal junkie, and he would go out and buy things. It was during the SNL crisis, and he got in trouble. And he ended up going to jail for borrowing too much money from one bank. I wasn't involved in any of that, but I got to run whatever he was buying. And so he would call me up and say, hey, you know, I'll never forget one phone call. It was an apartment manager down in Flagstaff, Arizona, and she calls and she says, I understand you're who I need to talk to about these apartments down here. I go, what apartments? He goes, well, 600 units of apartments down here in Flagstaff, and I understand you guys bought it, and what do we do with the rent? I go, let me call you right back. Hey, Tom, did you buy some apartment? Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot to tell you. Get down to Flagstaff, get that set up. You know, it's just how my life went. Well, you get used to doing that, and then by the time I go to do it for myself and I'm working on one-off project, one, you know, I'm working on one project versus working on 35 of them, it gets a lot simpler. Out of one phone call, you get a six-year education and some real success. Oh, yeah. And he had to trust you more than he trusted anyone else because you were the one that was making these things happen. He could do the deal, but you made it all Yeah, I, th yeah, I think so. He had, a, he had a couple of people that were working with him, but I think at the end of the day, it always kind of pivoted back to when, when it hit the fan, I was the guy that kind of came in the back end. So now what's the next step in your evolution? Uh, next step is basically I decide I'm going to go on my own. I have no money. You know, I, I have what little bit I've been able to save working for him, and I got little pieces of deals, but I didn't make any money working for him. So I went to work for Marcus and Melichap selling commercial real estate and selling shopping centers. And I was decent at it. I did a pretty good job in a short amount of time, made good money. And while I was in there, I had two of the guys in the office decided they were going to go build a subdivision and build houses and get into the, that business. And they'd come into my office every day. They bought some land and they were going out and we're doing this and we're doing that. And every time they'd walk into my office, I'd go, oh, I don't know. You might want to look at doing it this way. Well, about the fifth trip into my office, they said, hey, do you want to be a partner? And I go, mm, yeah, how much? I borrowed some money from my dad. Basically, that was my first subdivision. It was a little 28-lot subdivision down in Elk Grove. And we, the timing of it was very good. Uh, we all walked out of there with our pockets full of money. And we're still doing brokerage, so we're still making money in the brokerage side of the business. And then we get lumps of money from the, from the project. So they turned around and reinvested in another piece of land to go do another project. And I was nervous about the market because it was kind of one of these getting on the edge type of things. I forget what year it was, but it was, there was a big recession came right then. Um, and I ended up invest with some partners that I'd met through Marcus Felchad. We sold some shopping centers for them. And they invited me to come into a partnership with them on a couple shopping centers. And so I did that. 
basically came into their offices, managed the assets. Basically, we bought some rundown shopping centers and fixed them up and released them and did all that. And then that was the next step. Then the real estate market got really down on the land market. And for me, that's the time that I like because I can go out and option land and I can go make deals that I can't make when the market's strong. I can't compete with the big builders with big checkbooks and things like that. But I could go in and make a, tie things up on option, make a little option payments to them and wait for the market to come, get the entitlements in place and then go. So that's what I did. Got more into the land business and started buying and optioning farms. And, you know, my, I think if I was good at anything, it was getting permission. You know, I could, I could take a piece of land that was on the edge of something and get cities or counties to approve it for development. And I would go through the full entitlement process and the Fish and Wildlife Service and fishing game and all the, all the monotony that you have to go to. But I could get it done and get it approved. And when I got it approved, I could sell it. I started tying up land and, and doing pieces like that. But you're always moving forward. Trying. Like you said, that's the, that's the important yeah. part of this, is that you always look for new opportunities, mm -hmm. learn from your past experience. But now you've got a knowledge base that is, especially in your markets that you're working in, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's... it's you know, again, we, I got involved in a, in a, you know, as I was doing this, I got a couple of pieces of land gathered up and I was selling lots to builders and the builders were trying to, you know, they're, they're like anybody else. They're trying to buy it for as little as possible. And I'm trying to sell it for as much as possible. So there was a limited market down the central Valley of California and there was a limited market as far as builders down there. And they're just harpooning me. I finally said, I guess I'm going in the home building business. I'm just going to go build houses. I was at a party one night, and I ran into another member here at Bighorn, uh, Sid Dunmore. And he goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting ready to go into your business. He was a home builder. And he goes, are you out of your mind? I go, I don't know anything about it, but I'm not going to let these guys harpoon me. He goes, well, why don't we do a joint venture? We put a joint venture together on the home building operation down there. It started producing houses, and I had about 1,600 lots in this project. We started working through those lots. He had some land that he had that the entitlements had expired. And he says, why don't we do something on this? And we just kept getting bigger and more complex. He invited me basically to come in and be a joint venture partner with him, whatever they did, and wanted me to take over his land side of his operation. And, and then he would do the home building, and then we'd divvy up profits at the end of the day. And, and it worked out pretty well. So we did that for eight years, seven, eight years. Basically, he decided he wanted to get bigger, and I said, I'm done. One of the greatest things, and this is, this is something that I should have mentioned earlier on, but my mother, when I was young, when I was going through this thing of what do I want to do, I'd, I'd sold this little business, and I didn't know what to do. And she goes, you know, you need to write down goals. What are your goals? She goes, write a short-term goal, a mid-term goal, and a long-term goal. I thought about it, and I go, okay, I'll, I'll no, she goes, right now. How old were you? Oh, 21. Okay. 20, 21. I wrote down the, the short-term goal is I, I want to go to work. I want to do something. My midterm goal was I want to make a million dollars by the time I was 30, by the time I was 30 years old. And my long-term goal was to know when to get off the bus. I look at that today. It's more accurate than you can think. Obviously, a great lesson, but to stick to that lesson is even harder. Yeah. Your mom was right. 
the goals were right. But sometimes we lose sight of those things as we have some success, yeah. uh, get a little cocky. A lot of things can happen, uh, market conditions and all of that. But it seems like you stayed pretty true to mom's advice. Absolutely. I got to a point where we're talking about taking more risk and getting bigger and doing things. And, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm the front end guy. I'm out trying to buy land and trying to, I run all the numbers. I know if it's going to work or it's not going to work. And we're getting down to shaky ground, right? Where, Hey, these don't pencil at what we're doing today. We, if we don't get house appreciation, we're not going to be able to make money. We're talking about expanding. I go, you know what? I'm done. We worked out a deal where they bought me out. I was finished literally retired. I think I was 50. I'm like, okay, I'm all done. I don't need to do another thing. I came home one day and told, told my wife and she looked at me and she goes, really? I said, well, I'll get a hobby or something. <laughs> and uh, that lasted about mm, six months. Basically, I bought another company that did something. So in my world, every city manager, every mayor really didn't like the fire department very much because the fire department spent the majority of their budgets from the cities. I refer to it as the best quote I ever had from a city manager was they're like a big sucking noise. They're just looking for money. These guys came to me and wanted to borrow some money and they had created a company that billed on behalf of fire departments to recover costs for incidents. If you get in a wreck and, and there's there's money in your insurance to reimburse, reimburse the fire department for certain, certain things. No, I never knew that. They showed it to me and I go, that's pretty cool. You can actually generate money for a fire department. I go, I like this. So I bought the company. I think at the time they had 30 fire departments. That was 10 years ago. And today we have 1,775 fire departments, I think. It's just one of those things that made sense to me because they're always looking for money. And we've expanded it into uh, not just motor vehicle incident stuff. We do a large volume of fire safety inspection billing on their behalf. They come into a commercial building like this and do an inspection. They'll charge you for a building like this. It's probably $500 a year for the fire safety inspection. And we bill on their behalf and collect it and hand them the money. And we do it very efficiently and very... One of our departments on the East Coast, when we took them on, they were billing about $2.5 million a year and collecting about a million three. And the first year we took them on, we collected 99.7% of what they built. You know, we have that kind of success and we built a good, built a good team that does it. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I sit in on a meeting once a week and give them guidance, but I have a great team running it. That's what we're doing today. But if you can do something more efficient, more profitable, you can make money, but you have to recognize the opportunity. And what made you recognize this particular opportunity at the time? I think when I got out of the home building and the subdivision business, I think at that time I had over 30 subdivisions going in 20 different municipalities. In every one of them, you're dealing with the city manager, the mayor, the city council, all these people. And the consistent thing that I saw is they really you know, hate the budgets coming in from the fire departments. And so when I saw this and I go, you actually can generate money for these guys, I go, this could be okay. And I think it's just that belief and the fact that I was probably bored, it triggered me getting involved here. And it started out, you know, as my wife said, when I did it, she goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm not supposed to do anything. I'm not going to have to do anything. And of course, the guy that got me into it completely was not 
straightforward on what the deal was. And I ended up having to go in and fire half the team and reconfigure it and bring in new people. But, you know, basically within two years, I had it going in the right direction. And you know, I was in it a little heavier than I thought I would be in it. But it's just part of the nature. And, you know, we we got in there and we turned it around and, and it, it took some time. But, you know, you start getting a reputation. People start responding to that. It's really interesting because selling to a fire department or selling to a city, you can't do that. It has to be their idea. We start off with these big marketing campaigns. I say, yeah, we're going to go get everybody in the world. Well, a fire chief, first thing they do is they put their hand up and say, I'll, I'll let you know when I'm going to talk to you. We learned a lot in, I learned a lot, I should say, in how to deal with people in different functions in different places. And, you know, it's just, it didn't take long. You know, took a couple, I went to a couple trade shows and sat through the floor and talked to people. And I said, okay, I get it. So from there on out, it's, hey, you sell a fire department, write everybody around them, send them a note, say, hey, these guys just signed up. Would you be interested? And wait for the phone. Yes. Yeah. And again, sales, you mentioned right from the very start, is one of the most important talents one could have. But selling isn't always the hard sell. Sometimes it's selling people on on making the decision themselves. Yes. This is where we are today, but with everything that you've accomplished and you really have accomplished a lot, what drives you today? Trying to get below my handicap that I currently am. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I understand no. that. I still own two companies. We started because I'm a little masochistic. When the fire billing business was taken off and, and doing well, uh, one of the guys came to me and said, we were partnering with a company that was Firehouse Software that the guys had created an app for them to do fire safety inspections on. The partnership wasn't working out as well as they're basically not generating anything for us and we we're generating a lot for them. So they came and said, we should build our own app. I said, okay, what's that involve? And well, we got to find some guys that understand software. And I started another company called Streamline Automation Systems. And Streamline is a software company that does a software as a service for fire departments that does a fire safety inspection. It's pretty simple in concept. It throws it out on an iPad or a Microsoft tablet and they can walk through. And if it violates, it sends a violation notice to them. If it passes, it passes and sends them a certificate. You know, when you first start it, you think in simple terms like that. Well, as it progresses, it gets much more complex. I'm walking into an apartment complex with 50 buildings in it and we need to inspect each building and we want it all to roll up into a complex. Well. We just kept building on this thing, and, and I, I hired some firemen who were software people. And they basically helped guide the design of this because they know how it needed to work in the field. It's pretty awesome. We do um, the Streamline. We have, I think, four of the top ten fire departments in the country using it. Uh, City of Dallas uses it, Baltimore County, Durham, North Carolina. We've got it kind of all over the place. That has been the biggest adventure to me because I don't know anything about it and I own it. It's a hard thing to not know what you're doing and own something. Also, from hearing you talk, you're also active in, in either investigating the, the opportunities in AI. Where is that for you now and what do you see as the future as it affects you, but also the, just the future of AI and business today? 
AI is the most fascinating thing that we're going to see in our lifetime um, because it's and it, it's going to change everything and not just something. It's going to change everything for us in, in our business. You know, we start seeing it come in in machine learning, you know, and the machine learning was kind of the first version of AI and it's been out there for a long time. But but now with this self-training AI that they have, you know, basically it learns from itself and without interaction. And it's just fascinating. We're implementing it right now into our billing platform. And, you know, an example of a demonstration of what it'll do, we basically fed an ordinance into it, which is just, you know, a city council adopted resolution with all this language, all this other things, and with a command that says, identify the billable incidences in this document and put a schedule together with those billable incidences. Fed 10 of them in, it got 10 of them right. So then we fed in a run that said, basically, what we take off the, what their CAD system is a computer-aided dispatch system. And we take the run information off of it and, and feed it against the ordinance and with a command that said, basically, build this against this ordinance. And it spit out an invoice. It's not that simple. I mean, it's much more complex than this, but in a short-form version, it's fascinating. You know, we're implementing it into the billing platform right now in, in, in multiple different areas. And then on, you know, in a, in a life thing, you know, I agree with Elon Musk. It's the scariest thing that's ever hit us. And if somebody doesn't control this, you know, he, he, his statement is it could be the end of humanity. And I could see how he thinks that because it could replace us. And it's, it's just so smart. It's just dumbfounding what you can see it do. And I've watched examples, of, and it's fascinating. Yeah, we most recently had a, a podcast with a gentleman here, Bob Hammer, and he mentioned the same thing that you've mentioned, that we can't retrain people to do other jobs fast enough to keep up with what AI is going to do about making certain jobs obsolete. And so there is going to be a, a crisis in the labor market because there's so many jobs that now are going to be able to be done by AI. That's just one of the things that this kind that's of going to happen. This kind of comes back full circle on my job training. Schools that are focusing more on practical use, accountants and lawyers, there's going to be a problem coming down the road. From what I see of this, it's fascinating but you're never going to replace a painter and those people are going to become more valuable. It's kind of interesting. You know, I think there's going to be a transition that we're going to go through where training these, you know, there, there's, it's going to take a long window of training and getting these, these, this AI to do the full function of what they needed to do. They, it does, doesn't just happen. You know, it takes years of training it to get it to do what it's supposed to. Elon Musk with the self-driving thing is probably the greatest example. You know, he's been working on it for, you know, seven or eight, ten years, and they still don't have it yet. It's going to be like that in this, in this, but it's, you know, if you're, you're either going to need to be a software engineer or you're going to need to be some form of a service. Because I think the, the intermediate level of help will be automated. The horse is out of the barn. We can't stop it. So now we need to know how to maximize positive. Right. How do you how do you retrain? How do we get people to do, you know, what what they're going to need to do in the future when they don't know that that's what they're going to need to do? And that needs to start in the grade schools, right? It needs to start at a level that says, hey, 
you're 18 years by the time you get out of here. Somebody needs to take a look at, and, you know, we have DARPA, right? You know, the defense area invented the internet. They invented everything in there. They're like our national strategic planning thing for the military. Well, DARPA projects stuff out 20 to 30 years of what's going to happen. We need a DARPA for kids. We really need to take these kids that, that are coming through the school and train them to be something that's going to be relevant when they get out because it's changing so fast that, you know, it's going to be different. But again, we need to be proactive. We need to be proactive. And that's the, that's the recipe for success in most cases. Certainly has been the recipe of success for you. I mean, this is fascinating to me. Um, I will, you said when you, when I first asked you to come in here, well, my story is just not as exciting as some of the other stories. Your story, it amplify, is what people should need to know. This is how you get ahead in life, is that you work hard and you, but you're constantly growing. Your story was of a person to me, never stopped trying to be better, had a thirst for knowledge, if you will, about whatever project they were in, which was the next step. Kind of. <laughs> you know, there's a thirst for it and a need for it, right? And both, both of them kind of merge. You know, you jump in the middle of these projects, and especially when you're in the, in the land development world. You, you jump in and they throw a curveball at you, and, and it's like, hey, wait a minute. We've got the Fish and Wildlife Service that says we've got this bug over here that we can't deal with, and now we have to figure out how to mitigate that. And, you, you know, there's a hundred different options to how you do it, and it's trying to figure out the one that makes sense in economics. And so now all of a sudden I'm a fairy shrimp expert. Now we have to go learn this. We have to learn that. And you talk to people that are knowledgeable and learn, get as much knowledge from them as you can so that you can make some sort of a decision that you hope is going to be the right one. It's both a, an interest and a need. Do you do a lot of reading on what's new and what's coming and especially as it relates to the businesses that you're in? I do. Yeah. I, re I read a lot. I mean, and you know, I read, especially, you know, I'm a, I'm a big technology guy because I believe the technology is going to, well, it's happening now. You know, it's changing the world. And, you know, Walter Isaacson's books on, on Steve Jobs and Elon Musk are two of the best books I've ever read in my life because it shows how an entrepreneur doesn't stop. He doesn't say no. He says yes. He says we're going to change things. And kind of what I believe, it's like, hey, you know, if you wait you're going to get lapped. You can't wait. You need to be in the forefront of whatever you're working on and try to try to, you know, keep up with it because it's going to move fast. Yeah, I bring that up because I believe that that's part of an ongoing reading and and continue to be informed is part of an ongoing education if you will. And I think for young people this is it's not just the formal education. It's not just doing the work, but it's trying to improve yourself. And you do that by information. I, I, for, for me, it's, it's really interesting because I'm, you know, I'm at, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well done. I'm at the final stages of whatever I've got going here and I'm enjoying my life here. And you know, I don't really have any big desire to take on the next project other than one thing. I strongly believe that we need to do business training and trade school training for younger people. And we need to teach them what a role model is. And a role model 
is a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, people who invent things and do things that people say they can't do. I mean, the key to life is not that, hey, I'm going to get through life and I'm going to do, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know. You know, the key to life is I'm going to learn some things that I can take with me through life. I'm about half nuts. You know, I take things on that I didn't know what I was doing. But I did that just because I had a confidence from growing up, from what my family let me do, from what my job trained me to do, that allowed me to take it on and not say no. It would have been really easy to walk away from a bunch of things. I didn't. We've got to teach kids how to do that. There's a lot of margin there to, to help them. Fascinating. I know family's very important to you. Give, me, give us a little update on uh, for two things. One is what brought you to Bighorn and also a little background on your family, because without support of family, it's very difficult for us to do the crazy things that we want to become involved in and take chances and take risks at times when that may not look like the best path to take. Give us a little background on that. First, Ruth, without her, none of this would have been possible. She was selling commercial insurance when we first got married, and she made a great living. Because she made a good enough living, it allowed me to take my income and reinvest it into things, to buy things I would have not committed to or to commit to payments, you know, because in the land development business, it goes out, goes out, goes out, goes out. And then after about many years of going out, you get a check back if you're good at it. It allowed me to do that. Without her, none of this would have been possible. I had two children. I lost a son 18 months ago. He was an incredible kid, most sensitive guy you ever met in your life. I had two boys. My oldest son passed away 18 months ago from suicide, and it was horrible. Sensitive kid, great kid, unbelievable kid. You know, just very smart, very super. He went to Santa Barbara. He went to Columbia for a master's in real estate development. He went, you know, just a super kid. He did competitive wakeboarding. And during his competitive wakeboarding years, he had multiple concussions. And we finally made him stop. And I was there for, for most of them. And you knew that, hey, by the way, that's bad because he's repeating himself and he's blah, 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 blah. But what you don't realize is what the long-term stuff is. And he, I, we still don't know, but the bottom line is he had a bad day. I didn't realize that he had mental health issues at the level that he had them. And I, I'll never forgive myself for that. We have to pay attention to these kids. You know, he was, he was giving every indication it was good. He was under some financial stress. He was under some relationship stress. And it just, I don't know what happened, but we lost him. Um, my other son is, is uh, 28 now, just got married. And uh, he's... He's selling commercial insurance, following his mother's footsteps, um, and loves it. Uh, he's, they're uh, they're going to move up to Granite Bay, which is where our, our main home is in, outside of Sacramento. And they're in San Francisco now. They're getting ready to move in probably the next few months. And, you know, they're just young kids with their life starting. He comes down here periodically, and he'll stay three weeks, you know, because he can work remote, and he just loves it down here. So... 
uh, they're, they're, his life's moving forward and, and, uh, you know, he's, it's, it's fun to watch and talk to him and everything else. And I just, you know, it's just kids are, and there's nothing better in the universe than family. So, um, we're, you know, we're still trying to deal with Cameron and, and get through, you know, I don't know what it is that you get through. I don't think you ever get through, but it's horrible. Greg, thank you so much it's, um, for you being so vulnerable and, and talking about this. Uh, I can't imagine, and I'm sure no one else can, because um, it's, it's unfathomable um, and tragic. But I really appreciate you sharing that part of your life. No, but I think if 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 just one other person hears about this, or or as you said, we pay attention. Um, but there's no manual for this at all. No, you can go through a bunch of different things, but you know, literally, had we had any inkling, we would have been in the middle of it in a nanosecond. It's just sad. That brings us to Bighorn. They loved it here. We started coming to the desert. My dad. He started coming down here after he moved up to Portland during the winter. He come started coming down for a couple of weeks, then it was a month, then it was a little longer, and then he bought a place at a neighboring community. And so we'd come down and visit him and and hang out, and I, I loved it down the you know and the weather down here during the winter is spectacular. And so we started hanging out there, and so at you know probably thirty years ago. I bought a place in the community where he was and joined the golf course there. And the kids were, they were young. It was probably 26 years ago. I would take them out on the practice range and they would get kind of stares at them. And I'd take them on the putting green. And, you know, of course they'd run across the putting green, you know, like why it was three or four, you know, and I'd get some more stares. And I was there for about four years. I'm playing catch with one of them in there. There's huge open space behind the house and all grass, and I'm throwing the football to the kids. The security guard comes up and says, you can't play football out here. I go, we're not playing football. We're playing catch. You can't play catch out here. I went, this kind of epitomizes what I've been feeling, you know. It is, I just felt like I wasn't welcome because of the kids, you know. It didn't feel right. So I pick up the phone and I called my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law had been building homes in here since Westinghouse was in here. He built the the homes for Westinghouse that they built. And I, I called him and I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about going someplace else that likes kids. Where would that be? And he says, you need to go up to Bighorn. He goes, you're, you're going to love it. You're a Bighorn guy. I'm telling you right now, you need to go up there. So literally me and my normal passive approach, I was in the car that afternoon, drove over to Bighorn, met Bill, who runs the kids program here at Bighorn, talked to him a little bit, talked to Alan Scuba a little bit, basically bought a house the next week and joined Bighorn. The selling thing was... They have a little package for kids, unlimited lessons, unlimited golf. We love kids, and it's the best move I ever made. The people here, the profile of this place, it's me. If there's 400 members here, there's 400 different ways they got here. And it's just really cool. And it's fun, and it's like you talk to people, and they're all positive. There's, there's, I don't run into much negativity around here ever. 
And, you know, from that time on, I kept the, I kept the other house for about five years and I'd use it for overflow when we had guests because we, we were traveling back and forth because the kids were still in school. So we'd fly down for a weekend or we'd fly, you know, come down for four or five days at a time and, and do that. And then we'd have guests that had come down to visit and, you know, we'd put them over there and then we'd hang out and it's been the best decision I ever made coming in here. I mean, it's just from the people who work here to the people who are members, to the kids of the people who are members. Everybody's positive. It's really cool. It's hard to explain to people because I've been to, you know, as you, been to clubs all over the country. You don't get a vibe like this anywhere. I mean, it's just, it's really neat. Well, we say this all the time, but Greg, it's, there are developments, some really good ones, but this is a community. Yeah. People live here, and your story is... Um, part of what happens, and that is you come here to visit, you come here for weekends, you start staying a little longer, and pretty soon this is home. Yeah. Well, this we, is where your friends are. We're, we're right now, we get home and we're like, we're like, hey, we need to, we need to go back to the desert. You know, yeah. it's time. What is it time yet? Is it too early? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, so we, we literally, I don't miss going home. I miss coming back down here. It's become that way. And it's fascinating to me when I drive in the driveway from Abel and the guys out front to everybody in the building, it's the most warm, welcome thing. I mean, you just can't explain it to people. It's just really cool. Well, you've done a pretty good job of explaining it. That is exactly what you're describing. A couple of questions that we ask each one of the people that's nice enough to come in here. Who had the greatest influence on your life? And it could be multiple people, which it normally is. Yeah, I would say both my mom and dad, and for different reasons. As I mentioned earlier, my mom was kind of the, the, the anchor. My dad, my dad was awesome. My dad would come and get me out of school to go duck hunting when the weather was bad, you know. And it's like, you know, he just did great things. He was, he was cool. He was really cool. And then I would say Tom, uh, the guy that taught me the real estate business, because he changed my life. From that point on... I did things I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be able to do because he just said, do it. I think those three people are probably the pivots in my life. Well, again, sometimes we need to have, we, we all put limits on ourselves sometimes. We need somebody to take off those governors yeah. and, and allow you to see a bigger picture than you ever thought was possible. And that's kind of how I try to run the companies. I have a theory that everybody rises to their own level of incompetence and it's Probably not my theory, but I read it or heard it somewhere. But it's very true in a bunch of respects. My whole management style is to let people go. And then they're going to figure out when they hit a wall. You just pull them back a little bit from that point, and you just figured out where it fits. And I, you know, I've done that with the, the kids. I've done it with you know, the people that work for me. And it seems to work pretty well. You know, you, you'll, you'll find exceptions, but I think you let people go. Let them go see what they can do. Well, that's your, again, create an environment where they can do that, uh, but then allow them to. I mean, don't uh, allow people to make mistakes themselves, too, because that's what you did, and, and you learned from those, and as you said, you moved forward and became better for the experience. Tom used to introduce me as his Harvard MBA. We went into a meeting. I, you know, one of the projects that that he bought, um, unbeknownst to him, he didn't do a lot of due diligence sometimes, and I wasn't involved in the front end of this thing. But he bought a the backside of Vale Mountain 
from from New Jersey zinc. And it was a cop. It was one of the largest copper mines in the country, and they were mining silver out of it at the time he bought it, and had the, uh, the largest underground mine like in North America or something. He bought this thing, and the guy that was running, he hired a guy to go in and run the thing. I'd heard about it, but I didn't really know much about it. Well, the guy dies. The guy's 35 years old, goes out snowmobiling, has a heart attack, and dies. He grabs me, and he goes, come on, we got to go back to Colorado. And we think that the union killed him. I go, what are you talking about? He said, he goes, well, they're going to shut down the mine, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. so I go back there. Well, none of that. None of that was the case. But what I did find out is that the mine was scheduled to be a Superfund site starting in about 90 days. I basically had to go in and shut down the mine, shut off the pumps, shut off everything, let everybody go, and then deal with the U.S. government for years on trying to keep, because in a Superfund situation, corporations don't mean anything. It goes through to the individuals. What I was trying to do is limit his liability because, you know, A, first of all, New Jersey Zinc should have disclosed that it was all pending. It wasn't. Bottom line is, is that my goal was to limit his exposure. So all I did is start shutting things off. It was fascinating. It's one of those things that... It's all part of the story. It's all part of the story. What people, you've talked a little bit about your management philosophy. What do you look for in people that you work with or hire? Trust. I mean, if I can't trust them, I can't have them. It's really simple. And I don't mean big trust. I mean little trust. You know, if, if, if there's little things that aren't straightforward, the big things are going to really be not straightforward. So trust and, and commitment. You know, I want them committed. When I, when I used to interview and hire people on the land development side, my common strategy was take my money clip out of my pocket and hand it to them and say, okay, you're holding that. Treat it as if it were your own. You know, don't spend my money unnecessarily. Pay attention. It's your money too. And, they, you know, you could get that conveyed through. They, they knew I was, because every once in a while when they did something wrong, I'd just throw my money clip on the table. <laughs> it got, they got it, the message. They got the message. Yeah. The last question I ask everybody, what advice would, give, would you give the 20-year-old you today? Hmm. Just don't look back. Go forward. Pick something, try it if it doesn't work. You know, literally, I've had 13 or 14 different careers. Every one of them, I, I thought I was going to kill it in that career and I would never do anything else when I got into it. And at some point, something changed. Don't be afraid to try. Go do whatever you think you can do. And if you fail, that's part of learning. If you don't fail, you haven't done, you haven't tried. And if you fail three and win one, one sometimes all you need. Don't be scared. Greg, I just really want to thank you for coming in. I thank you for sharing your story. I think that this all, as I said to you before when you agreed to do this, these are life lessons. A lot of this stuff is just life lessons. And your life has really been something. Now, it has ups and downs. It has twists and turns for sure. But again, this is a story that's worth listening to. And this is a story that people are going to be affected by. Thanks. Thank you. Craig, 
Thank you for coming in to tell your story. I appreciate you sharing with us your successes, challenges, and your honesty. There are many tremendous lessons to be learned, and as with many of our podcasts, can be shared with our children and grandchildren, showing them the many paths that can be taken to reach our goals. And thanks again to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, who has the most knowledgeable team regarding everything Bighorn. Eisenhower Medical Center. We are so fortunate to have the finest in healthcare in our own backyard. Back Nine Greens, who is a member of our community, but does award-winning work worldwide. And Corliss Estate Wines, please enjoy their world-renowned fine wines today. And thanks to all of you for listening and for all of your positive comments. We have many more stories to share with the Bighorn Podcast.